IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast presented by Insurance Business. and welcome back to IB Talk, the insurance business podcast in which we talk to some of the leading names across the global insurance industry. I'm Paul Lucas, the Managing Editor of Insurance Business Worldwide, and on this edition of IB Talk, I'm thrilled to welcome the CEO of Marsh Commercial, Anthony Grupo. Anthony, welcome to IB Talk. Oh, thank you, Paul. I've been looking forward to being on your show. I've wanted to have you on as a guest, Anthony, uh, in part because you're a podcast host yourself, and I'm hopeful that you can save me if I'm woeful at this. Um, But we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Tell me first about your pathway to Marsh Commercial. How did you start out in the insurance industry? Did you fall into it like so many have? Yeah, I I would have to say I did. You know, it's uh, we all have that that background that you know knits the fabric of what we become. And I was uh, actually repossessing cars at the time. So I was a bill collector. And the organization in the United States and Pennsylvania also had an insurance retail operation. And I moved over to there. I thought it was a lot safer selling insurance than trying to repossess cars. For sure. And uh, that's how I ended up in the business and just went from there. So, so what was your first role exactly in, in the business? Yeah, so my first was really on... Uh, straight commission. There were no salaries at that time. And I was selling as a producer, insurance producer, auto, homeowners, and life insurance door to door. Wow. So times have changed a lot since then. They have. But you know, those skills that you learned then, right? That fearlessness, that ability to, to you, because you're only going to eat when you, when you're able to sell teaches you a, a skill set that is invaluable the rest of your life. Obviously, now you're the, the CEO of a company. Um, do you miss that sort of, you know, hands-on action if you want? No, I think, you know, today's CEO, I I, I don't really pay attention, pause. I know you, you come from the same type of, of culture as a leader that I don't look at title as things like a chief executive officer. I look at a CEO as someone who can coach themselves and others, be entrepreneurial in their thinking and act like an owner. And I think when you do that, you you set as a goal to send, I, I try to spend 70% of my time in direct contact with clients and colleagues and community and never lose that desire to be out uh, trying to be of service. I believe that it's important. And it was my passion then as it is now to have a mantra that I don't I don't chase commission. I chase a client's mission. And when you're built to serve in a servant leadership system, regardless of your title, we should all be CEOs. And that's kind of the the culture I try to impart uh, in others. But how did you rise the ranks? Because I know that before, obviously, you made the switch to Marsha McLennan, you were um, at USI um, as as president in the Fort Lauderdale office. Um, Tell me about how you sort of climbed the rankings uh, within, within the insurance business. You know, it's a good question, and it's it's a thoughtful one as you reflect back uh, over you know your your time. I think that it I always tried to do what others felt was impossible or did not want to do, and perhaps go places others didn't want to go, both geographically perhaps and also mentally. Is I was always blessed to be surrounded with great people, and. I, I think you just keep trying to put yourself in a position where you can grow and try new things and make mistakes. And so I never looked at it as 
I never looked at it, Paul, in a way that a benchmark of a climb, I looked at it as a benchmark of outcomes and how to serve. And the next thing you know, you look around and you're an expat living in, in United Kingdom, uh, you know, serving people here. I definitely want to come to that, come, come on to that in just a second. But um, just with you saying there that, you know, you, you don't, don't be afraid to make mistakes. I think sometimes people hear that from those who are sort of at the top of a company and think, well, it's, it's, it's easy for you to say that. Um, but, you know, f- from, from your position now, looking back, maybe you can share a story. Was there ever a time in your career when you, you, know, you made a, a mistake and it ended up, you know, sort of helping you to progress? Sure. You know, I can remember when being in the United States and building association programs, you know, here we know them as as schemes and affinities. And I remember we were building uh, a a scheme and affinity in the world of of mental health and mental retardation and drug and alcohol. And I remember making the mistake of looking at the people that serve humanity that are disadvantaged. And I looked at it as, you know, how, how... can we take this one at a time, you know, mental health perhaps first and mental retardation second and children in crisis. And I made a mistake and I probably wasted two years of serving of others because I was looking at it as, as a trained insurance professional versus a, a humanitarian. And when I wrapped it all together, we really started to help people and it went on to become one of the top national programs in service to, to kids in crisis. And in fact, Linda, my wife and I, went on to become foster parents ourselves and taking kids that that uh, were troubled. So I think you could, I made a mistake of looking at things as business and maybe profit or growth instead of looking at service of others. And it's a lesson I won't forget. And, it, and it's one that I try to carry forward. I guess it's really... Um a vital uh, philosophy for an insurance broker to have, especially, you know, the smaller brokers who are working in communities. Yeah, you know, big or small. I, I, I mean, some people can look at Marsh and Marsh Commercial. I mean, Marsh Commercial, you know, we have over 55 locations and 2,700 people and hundreds of thousands of clients. And But it's it's having that, that presence, that ability to serve locally using global resources. And I, I hope that None of us ever get to the point that we think we're big. I, I think we are small in comparison of what of what the world needs from us. And we're in a, in a unique position in the insurance business. There's no business like it that can perform like we can and be there at a time, especially now. Look at what's happening with a pandemic. Uh, we're, we're, the, we're the ones on the front line trying to help. And I'll, it's important. So I'm. Speaking of you know the the role that insurance can play, and and I think it can also bring a lot of variety as well to to someone's career. Um, and and you've certainly had variety because you, you were at Marshall McLennan, and you've moved across now to to this role in the UK at the as as the chief for for Marsh Commercial. Um, how did the move come about? How did you feel about making the switch to the UK? Yeah, so it's a very exciting time. I, I <laughs> it was unexpected. I really did not see see it coming. Uh, I certainly had uh, been, you know, I was leading the Northeast part of the United States uh, for for Marshall McLennan Agency, and we were having, you know, very uh, very good successful outcomes thanks to all the people that I was working with there at, at Marshall McLennan Agency in the Northeast. And because of our organic growth and and service platforms and other things, it it 
really played well here in the United Kingdom with the organization that was then known as JELF that now has become Marsh Commercial. So I, I received a call one day saying, you know, would you consider becoming the CEO in the United Kingdom and, and changing countries? So th- those also always um, bring a great deal of thought. And I uh, talked it over with uh, with Linda, my wife and, and family, and um, we, uh, we decided to take the challenge, push the impossible. So how's it been adjusting to life over here? Love it here. So I absolutely love it here. It um, the people are fantastic. I've the openness of new ideas and concepts, the ability to be thoughtful and work. Like I have a leadership team at Marsh Commercial that are just spectacular. Uh, my regional CEOs and support people and resources and comms and marketing. These are very talented people. And when you give people of talent the ability to make decisions, move at pace and use their creativity wrapped in a, in a long-term strategic plan based on outcomes, what they can do is, is simply stellar. So I, I love it here. I, uh, besides, Paul, I have to tell you that I think tea, afternoon tea, is one of the greatest dining experiences known to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you've, uh, you, you mentioned that you've got sort of regional CEOs and so on. So you very much, you know, f- from your position, you like to have, you know, sort of to delegate the authority if you want to, to give people control. Do you think that's important for, for a leader like yourself? I do. And, and I know, you know, listening to your podcast, I know that you are a leader who thinks in a similar manner is strategy and research development of thought should always come from senior leaders, right? So my, my nucleus of my, my leadership council, but execution implementation must be allowed in the field because we have a very diverse country. If you think that issues that apply in, because I have offices that go from Kirkwall uh, in the Orkney Islands all the way down to Plymouth. And when I was in recently up in Kirkwall, the the community there is very different. Uh, it's vibrant, great people, tremendous work ethic. And some of the things they face there could be very different than you might face in Exeter. So you have your strategy and your plan, but it has to be implementation and execution in the field. And you've got to trust people to uh, make those decisions based on their talent and not micromanage. So let's talk about strategic planning then. I mean, tell sure. me about, you know, exactly what it is within the insurance sector, you know, in terms of how, you know, if, if a broker, for example, has a, has a business of their own, sort of what the steps that they can be taking towards, you know, a strategic plan, what could they outline for their business? Is it a case of looking at, you know, where I want to be in a year's time or in five years time, or, you know, is there a template to follow or certain steps that you'd recommend? Yeah, I, I, I'll try to be um, very tactical and succinct in my response so that the listeners can can use this. And, and, I, and I don't mind sharing these things. Uh, 20 years ago, I've been blessed to have written uh, six books in my career. And 20 years ago, I wrote a book called Six Degrees of Impact, Breaking Corporate Glass. And I co-authored that book at the time with Monique Terhar, a, um, a psychologist, actually, And we came together to see what would happen if you put someone who thinks about the human psychology along with a business leader, uh, and uh, in this case happened to be the two of us. And what we defined, what we came up with 20 years later is still very impactful. So here's the roadmap to to Paul, to, to your question. I always look at it in six areas. And when you think about your question about 
short and long-term vision, you should build a plan. So here's the step. Step one is try to build a plan as far as you can see. Don't think just in terms of one, three, and five years, but as far as you can see, there are there are great organizations, in fact, cultures of humanity that from the history of time that plan as far as they can see for multiple generations. Now, now let's now let's bring it into a business framework. First one is leadership. Think about leadership, it's perpetuation, succession of it, and the future of your organization. Two, look at your marketing internally and externally. How, third, how you research, develop. What, what are you researching and what are you developing? Resources that you need inside internally and externally. What kind of outcomes do you want to produce? And then instead of having nine goals, just have one goal per, per area, build your objectives and actions around those and start. Just start. Don't make it so convoluted and, and thick that you get in your own way. Start those six, execute on them, and accomplish the task. Set owners and set dates. So have an owner responsible for each action, dates that you all agree it's going to get done, and then go. I just see so many organizations. Hell, I see a lot of people, right? Because there should be a, an integration of your passion as a person uh, integrate to, integrated with your passion as a professional. They're not. They're not. They're not different. They're the same. It's the same person. Yet we act different at home as we than we do at work. Why? Because we haven't integrated those two. So the person's strategic plan and the organizational's uh, development strategic plan should have some similarity. Then people will stay. You won't have turnover. It won't look. Here's an exciting statistic, Paul, and you know this. That this is the first time in the history of the world that five generations are in a workplace together. Five. So now it's everything. Well, how should we coach millennials? How should we coach people in their 60s? Really? How about you say we coach people? Because when you have a strategic plan attached to passion, performance increases. So I suggest that when you do this type of thing, you take your passion, weld it to your potential, increase your performance. And organizations that can do that take off like rockets. So, I mean, you, you said there that, you know, don't don't think of, you know, millennials, don't think of, you know, Gen Z, for example. But yeah, maybe if I'm, uh, you know, an, an older broker with business and I, I, I might feel a, a disconnect to those younger people. I mean, is there a way to kind of bridge that gap? Yeah. So the disconnect, well said. Good, great question. The disconnect comes from failure to communicate. We make assumptions. In fact, I'd call it a bit of corporate racism where we make assumptions about people of certain age and think that that's how they act. It's no different than than someone may look at, at you or me and think make a decision based on on uh, on our age, but yet someone at various ages can bring more energy than to the game than people much younger than them. At the same time, you can have people who are younger who who really don't have the impetus to get out of their own way. So we have to talk to each other, what's important to each other, build goals together, and ask people their opinion. Not a command and control environment that assumes because they've been around longer, they know. Well, we don't. It's a new world order. And we have to talk to each other and trust each other. And at the end of it, care about each other. 
Is this something you've done? I don't know if you've got a, sort of a certain example for, um, you know, where perhaps you've spoken to a, a younger member or an, an apprentice or something like this, and, and they've given you, you know, a, an idea or they've given you a spark or you've taken sure. something from them. Sure. So I, I have tons of those, but I'll, one, I'll use the first one that comes to mind. I was in Texas um, helping uh, our Marsh McLennan agencies, uh, agency throughout the Southwest part of the United States. And I was living in Houston at the time. And I, and I always ask colleagues, no matter who they are, I ask them, what are you doing that's absurd? They look at you, they say, excuse me? I say, what do you do here at work that you think is absurd? And they know things. They know ways that they work that maybe doesn't make sense because they're the ones doing it. It may have looked, made sense to us in management, but we're not doing the job. So I said this to the receptionist in our Houston office one day. She looked at me and she said, um, are you serious? I said, yes. I said, what do, you, what do you do that's absurd? She said, well, let me show you something. She said, look at this, this entry that I have to do three times. So I walked around the back of her console and I said, take your time, show it to me. And she showed it to me. I said, oh, my God, how do you work like this? Same thing three times in a very sophisticated system? Well, guess what happened? I asked her supervisor to come over. We took a look at it. She said, yeah, that's kind of how it works. I said, really? Because can't we do better? Got some ops people. Got some IT people. We're all huddled around the console. And we changed it. That idea that that young lady had probably saved us tens of thousands of dollars of time not to mention staff frustration. That's amazing. Paid her a bonus. Paid her a spot bonus for intellectual capital deployed at the site. So I would suggest in life and in the workplace, what are we doing that's absurd? It's a great, great point. And, you know, but I think sometimes when, when we look at strategic planning, and I think of, you know, at the start of every year, perhaps we all make sort of New Year's resolutions. We all set goals for ourselves. And then maybe by February comes along, we find that we've, yeah, <laughs> we, we, we're no longer on track for those. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, yeah. if that happens in, to a business, if something throws them off track from a strategic plan, what can they do to kind of get back on track? Yeah. So the first thing is look at the direct cause of what caused you to get off track. Is it something that you've made excuses for all the time? You, you know what I'm talking about, Paul, right? People are like, oh, well, this is, I knew that was going to happen, or that's what always happens. And so look at the direct cause of it. And was it intrinsic? Was it homogeneic? Was it you that caused it because you couldn't get out of someone's way? And then after you find the root cause, then start to replant it. I, I expect setbacks. I expect mistakes. I know that when that's happening, it's because we're trying something new. The only failure is not trying something new. So I don't get twisted by that. I just, I, I take it, learn from it and move on. So do you think that brokers, I mean, a sort of part of their role is expanding, right? They're becoming, you know, they're, they're providing yep. risk advice. They're becoming yep. more of a, almost like a financial advisor, if you want, to uh, the, the people that they're dealing with, uh, the companies that they're dealing with. So, I mean, is this something that brokers, you know, can they offer advice to companies that they work with on their own strategic planning? Is this something that they could be working into their discussions around risk mitigation, for example? I think so. I think it's important. Look, the, the idea is to create... A, a consultative science in a world that was always transactional or usually transactional. 
Now, what I see happens a lot, though, is that, and, and I won't just say brokers, but in business, but since your question, obviously, in your audience relates to brokers, is that they want to be strategic and consultative, but they judge everything based against transactional results. Well, then how can you do that? So before you can actually say you're going to be an organizational development specialist, a strategist, and do that for clients, you got to do it for yourself. Because if you can't, it's the, it's the shoemaker without shoes. In our business, any business, but specifically in the insurance business, a broker is really four different roles wrapped up inside a human, a human delivery. It is, we're consultants, we're facilitators, we're strategists, and we're closers. If you work to all four of those, those patterns, you got a chance of being a pretty good consultative mind. If you can't, you're probably going to struggle. It's tough though, isn't it? I mean, it... And that takes a lot of years of practice, a lot of years of practice. That is not a conversion that happens by third quarter if you've never done it before. I was going to say, it's tough though, isn't it? Because I mean, you know, if you've got, you said that some people think with that sort of trans transactional mindset, and I guess that comes from pressure. It comes from pressure to hit targets and so on. Um, you know, if, if you've got those targets over you, if you've got a boss that wants you to kind of produce this result by this date, you know, how can you, how can you adopt the, the mindset that you're kind of outlining? Yeah. So look, I, I love this question and, and it's very thoughtful on your part. You're, you're a good host. <laughs> Like you're no Paul, you're a good podcast host, right? So <laughs> look, look, there are a lot of them out there, Paul. They're not like you. So here's here's the um, here's the trick to that is if you're with organizations that make all the decisions based on the financial results of a quarter, a month, a forecast, you got no chance. I'm lucky. Right? I'm lucky. I mean, although we're we're a global company. We work on the mindset of, of organic growth, and we know that you don't save your way to prosperity. We don't make decisions based on, on a quarter. because Sure, everybody's thoughtful and you're frugal, right? And you try to make be, be um, fiscally um, uh, responsible. But you have to do it against a strategy, Paul. Many don't have one, so their only thing they can force themselves to is spikes, up, down, cuts, growth because the, the strategy doesn't give them the organic platform. I would, I would not let the financials be the guide or the roadmap. The strategy is the guide and the roadmap. And now you apply the financials to that. And then the results are different. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people who are, you know, going to want to hear a lot more of your advice. And you do have your own podcast, which I mentioned earlier on, uh, which is called The Roots of Leadership. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So it was an idea uh, coming up on two years ago. I realized in, you know, because as a as a, uh, a writer and an executive and, and other um, areas that I, I try to expand in, I realized that the world, what I saw of a lot of people I knew that, that were just really wonderful people, they, a lot of them came from nothing. You know, I, I, I'm blessed to come from very humble beginnings. My, my dad was a, a steel worker, a welder. My mother was a seamstress and sewing machine operator. And I had a wonderful family and, and growing up. And 
what I decided in the podcast was to interview people who had a great story, who came from nothing. And what, how did they, did they create their leadership culture? And what were some of their ideas? And the thing has just taken off to have hundreds of thousands of listeners. And now we've, we've moved the show over here to United Kingdom and it's, it's on the roots of leadership.com. And here was the exciting thing. In fact, my latest book called Pushers of the Possible that came out in November of 19 uh, tells a lot of their stories and, and their interviews and then the, the lessons learned. But when I sat down one day uh, with my publisher and we were talking about writing the book, my publisher, Shannon Peel uh, from Market Appeal in Canada, asked me, was there a common thread of, of my guests or people I've known? And we went back through it. What do you think it was, Paul? I'm going to the one common I'm thread. Guess that they were inspirational in some way. Yeah, good, good, very, very much so. And that inspiration came from the birth of humility. Every one of them credited other people. Mm-hmm. Every one of them had a story to tell of why it wasn't because of them; it was because of others. That definition of servant leadership. And I learned a lot from them. And I remolded and reinvented myself in many regards to emulate and honor those people. My father, I lost him, you know, relatively young one from Lou Gehrig, uh, what you would know here is a neurological disorder in America. We call it ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And he asked me one day to define greatness. This simple welder, this man who never had a business card, never be on a podcast, never would be in front of uh, thousands of, of colleagues in, a, in another country. And he asked me to define greatness. And I gave a very, you know, parochial probably answer. And he smiled and said that the pinnacle of greatness is defined when others duplicate what you start. Mm-hmm. That if other people don't duplicate what you started, then how could you have ever been great at all? So the podcast is a fabric of humanity with the homogeneity of, of humility in the service of others trying to duplicate what they started superb um, you talked about humility and sometimes that can be a little bit lacking on the internet the internet is full of the anonymous uh, keyboard mm. critics um i'm sure we'll have some comments you know on on this podcast from monkfan22 saying great insights from anthony but lose the idiot host uh, how do you deal with any negative reactions <laughs> to your podcasts or, or indeed in general across business I, I, I'm always grateful for criticism. Uh, I, I, I don't, I try not to get twisted up in the defense of it because that individual uh, had a, a reason for that criticism on Instagram or Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever it might be. But at the end of the day, I also know that they don't know me or there's no dialogue of, of conversation. In social media and, and other environments, we've lost the art of conversation. We've gained the art of pontification, but not conversation. So I don't. I look at, at criticism as valuable insight. At the same time, I never let it derail my focus or discipline to achieve. Does that make sense? I, as I say it, I trying to think of it made sense to me, and it, yeah, I. 
I'm okay with it. <laughs> 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 because so, <laughs> sometimes don't we all do that, right? We don't evaluate sometimes the things that we, we say or think and say, well, hang on a second. Is that, you know, but I, I'm going to stay with it, Paul. I'm going with that answer. Uh, I'm, I'm happy with that answer as well. And I, yeah, I, I think this has been brilliant. I'm, I'm really thrilled to have had you with us. Tell us if the, the listeners want to reach out to you on the, on the back of this and, you know, find out a little bit more. Um, how can they do that? Sure. Glad to. So um, I'm on Instagram. Uh, people can find me there at Anthony Grupo. Uh, LinkedIn uh, is, is a great, great platform. Uh, the Roots of Leadership, the rootsofleadership.com website, and certainly at, at, uh, at Marsh Commercial, anthony.grupo at marshcommercial.co.uk. And uh, any, uh, glad to talk to anyone about anything. Brilliant. This, is, this has been great, Anthony. Thank you very much for your time. Um, ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of Anthony and Insurance Business, I've been Paul Lucas. This is IB Talk, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you, Paul. Real pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of IB Talk. Follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts for the latest episodes. 